for me, I found that there's actually been a tremendous advantage in approaching a conversation where you understand the person's preconceived notions and assumptions about you and just smashing all of those to pieces. Welcome to the Current Mood Podcast. This is your host, Jacqueline Marie. Current Mood is a series exploring self-care techniques, mental models, and core patterns propelling our increasingly digital lives. Through conversations with founders, entrepreneurs, educators, and executives across creative disciplines, I get a chance to learn about things that work for people in their everyday lives. In today's show, I had the opportunity to have an amazing conversation with Allison Toy. Allison is one of the partner managers at Twitch um, for the music vertical. She helps onboard artists and labels and um, collectives in the music space to the Twitch live streaming platform. She is an amazing human. She's a fellow bro. We identify both of us as bra girls. <laughs> You'll find out more in the episode. We got a chance to kind of talk about the intricacies and implications of being a woman in the music business and the entertainment business at large, uh, what that looks like outside of the U.S. and in some parts of Asia. Allison has amazing perspective on that, being a Chinese-American we got to talk about burnout and what that looks like and self-care, toxic masculinity. We really go deep. Um, and at the end, you'll have a very special treat from her doing a live piano solo, which I had no clue about. She's an incredible pianist and she was a competitive piano player for a really long time. Who knew? To uncover some really cool stuff. Hope you enjoy the chat. Can you introduce yourself? Um, so I am Allison, Allison Toy. Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area. I moved to New York in 2007 and lived there for a little over 10 years to pursue a career in the music industry, which is what I still do today. Um, after leaving New York, I lived in Shanghai for two years, and now I'm back in the Bay Area, currently working at a company called Twitch. Mm. D- did 10-year-old Allison think she'd be working at a tech company right now? No, because 10, like when I was 10, AKA 5,000 years ago, companies of this type did not exist, my friend. Like we didn't even have Palm Pilots then yet, right? Like (laughs) at the time I thought I was going to be a professional pianist. I really really? believed that. Yeah. I studied at NYU and when I graduated, uh, the first job I got in the music industry and I was so stoked about it at the time was working at William Morris, William Morris Endeavor. Um, I started in the mailroom, like a very sort of classic music industry start in every sense of the word. And um, And that was a talent agency, right? Yeah. Booking agency, talent agency. And so um, really the oldest one and the biggest one, and in many ways, probably the most traditional. And by traditional, I mean, sort of adhering to this like sort of classic agency model of having a bunch of different agents that kind of behave like Jerry Maguire, where they (laughs) yell at each other and they poach each other's clients. And, um, you know, they're kind of known as uh, the more prickly parts of the music industry, of which there are many. So, you know, that this title goes, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you know that it's serious, right? But yeah. so I started at William Morris. Uh, Kara Lewis is a um, 
music agent who really kind of came up with hip hop when it did. I know that you worked with her. Tell me, tell me about that time of your life. Oh man. Mm. Um, You know, she's from the Bronx, Jewish lady, really incredible agent, really, really terrifying person (laughs) who is just sort of known for constantly berating promoters who she works with managers even who are clients of hers, like even berating those folks. Um, And just generally being, you know, really tough and kind of like exemplifying like X 1 million, all of the, 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 you know, stereotypical scary agent behaviors, right? Were were other, were male agents at the agency like that too? Or did she, did she outdo them? And she kind of stood out because she was a woman acting like that. She outdid them. I think, you know, I, I still question to this day how much that has to do with gender and how much it doesn't, right? Yeah. Because I'd say that, like, those characteristics were exemplified and rewarded, mind you, which is why they were exemplified by so many different agents, um, older ones, younger ones, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I do think that the way that Kara kind of ascended in her career, the way that she had to behave, a lot of it was to do with the fact that she was a woman, right? Mm. At that time when when I entered the business and everything, women were still a small minority of booking and talent agents at the time. When she mm. entered that business, there were almost none. Who were the artists that she was involved in? Dude, she booked like Biggie. She she shouted out on an Eric B. and Rakim song. Right, right, right. But, That's what I'm thinking of. I, I feel like she did some shows for Nas. Like the, the point is in many ways, like Kara Lewis was like kind of like the founding booking agent of hip hop music as it became more and more commercially viable as like, you know, Queen Latifah and Will Smith mm. got their TV deals. And that really kind of catapulted things from like being this thing that people saw as like something that just existed in the streets to being something that was like on major net- network television, right? Like very different sort of, sort of way. And, you know, as as is the case today, like hip hop is a different beast as far as like how you work with artists and the genre and just the industry and everything. And Kara was literally the first and for a long time, the only person who was really booking it. So if you were a promoter and you wanted to have a hip hop show, there was almost no other game in town. She had all the power. It was like having a monopoly, basically. And, you know, she she exercised that power and guarded it greatly because you best believe that there was tons of men trying to take it from her. Mm. I mean, I am not privy to any of those stories, but I can only imagine, especially at that time, right? There are tons of sort of like pioneering women who are doing new and different things that were not always available to women in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, to a certain extent, those pursuits are supported um, you know, not only just by companies, but also by individuals around them. Like that was not the case back then. And so there really was very much like this, a, a sense that I got, and, you know, I don't think she would ever say this publicly, but a sense that I got that, you know, she and other women agents of the time of that era and everything really had to fight to get what they had, really had to fight to keep it, had to be extra difficult, extra good at their jobs. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that, that whole narrative. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, do you feel like that? Do you, have you felt like that in the working in the music industry as a woman? I have. I have. Um, you know, I don't think to the extent and to like the extreme that they have, but yeah. definitely like there has, I have so many times been told that I'm a, I'm a good DJ for a girl or I'm, Ooh. yeah, right? Ooh. It's thingy. Yeah. You got to chew them out when they say that. They're I heard like, that too. Like some, you're 
you're a good, oh, you can drive stick. You're a good driver for a girl. I'm like, I'm a better driver than you, bro. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> oh, sorry. So great that you feel that way. I can tell <laughs> that you don't DJ and you probably only listen to the radio and but, um, you know, for me, like I definitely, um, I definitely have felt it, but I've also felt the reverse. Like your kind of argument to this whole, like, oh, you know, a, a woman needs to be twice as good as a man to be considered half as good as he, right? I, I think a reframe that one can offer to that, and I think is pertinent specifically for the entertainment industry and maybe for others too, but at least in, in my experience, um, you know, it's been interesting to approach new relationships, conversations, meetings, business deals, whatever it is, knowing that the person on the other side has certain preconceived notions about you, Mm. you know, who you are, what you're about, what you're willing to concede on the, you know, the expectation that you're not going to negotiate, et cetera, et cetera. And, And I think being an Asian woman where we're sort of like classified as this kind of like subservient, like quiet, demure and passive type of individual. Like I think anybody who knows me would probably say that I am none of those things. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, and, and I demure is not, is not a word that I demure. Think I God, <laughs> I can't believe I've even uttered that word in relation to myself, but really, I mean, I think for me, I found that there's actually been a tremendous advantage in approaching a conversation where you understand the person's preconceived notions and assumptions about you and just smashing all of those to pieces. Mm. Like it's, it's like, it, there's an element of surprise. It makes you more memorable afterwards. Nobody will forget you. You're just different. And, and, you know, it's kind of like been my way of, of turning what a lot of people consider a disadvantage into a competitive advantage, into mm. an advantage that has been respected. Mm. I mean, I think, for me, as much as it was very difficult to work for Kara at the time that I did, um, you know, I worked for her at CAA, by the way, I mentioned William Morris at first, which is where I started actually working for a different uh, woman music agent named Sam Kirby, who was also Mm. sort of notoriously quite tough, really incredible agent. At the time we were doing like MIA, LCD sound system, Swedish house mafia. Oh, Swedish house mafia. No way. Yeah, dude. She even (laughs) had massive attack. Like her roster was popping. Bruh, that's a sick roster. Seriously. Now she does like FKA twigs and banks and all that. So um, taste wise, so good. Um, But yeah, you know, at some point Kara went over to CAA and and I went over with her and worked for her there. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess my point is, in the course of the time of of working for both of those two women, two of the most sort of powerful music agents in New York City at the time, um, I learned a tremendous amount. Uh, You know, I can't say that I felt the kind of like warm mentorship (laughs) or supporting or uplifting from either of them, but I sure as hell did learn how to stand up for myself, Mm. negotiate, force people to respect me, Mm -hmm. and never take no for an answer. Okay. I have two (laughs) follow-up questions for you. The first one, the first one is, was there like a tipping point, like a situation that happened in where you were like, Oh shit, this is an advantage. Hmm. Like, is there a situation you remember where you're like, Oh shit, I got like four times as much money in this offer (laughs) or something crazy. You know, uh, I don't think there was like one sort of big pivotal moment But, you know, one thing that did sort of make me start to get hit to to what I now refer to as like the woman's competitive advantage in entertainment, right? The first thing for me was, um, you know, a big part of my job because 
we were working in booking, right? We were booking shows all over the nation and everything. Mm. And everybody would come through New York. I would oftentimes go to shows um, that were in our city to settle them with the promoters, to meet with the managers, make sure everything was good, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And just kind of like be present in network, which was, which was like a big focus of what I was doing at the time. It was just like, <laughs> you know, you're like 22 years old and getting a ticket to any show that you want to go to was like a reward in and of itself. Right. Right. But, um, you know, in, in, in retrospect, like there are all sorts of people that go to these shows and everything. And, you know, you can kind of tell who's important. You look at the VIP section and there are certain people that like everybody wants to say hi to blah, 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 blah. Um, and you know, when you're, when you're just like the baby in the room and stuff, you, you expect nothing. Right. After doing this and going to these shows a lot for a while and just kind of like talking to people, being available, being present and everything, I realized that a lot of important people started to remember me. Mm. They, you know, they knew me by name. And, you know, oftentimes I would go to these shows with other assistants of Kara's who, who were also women, but like white women for the most part, like pretty much all of them were mm. honestly, but people would remember me. And I think it was because <laughs> I stood out. There yeah. just was nobody that looked like me in the room ever at that time. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. And so I think, you know, being this like, loud, pushy, (laughs) unrelenting little Asian girl was like (laughs) memorable to people because I think a lot of them just kind of got a kick out of it. They're like, but you, you do it in a respectable way though. It's not like annoying, you know, like, it's not like, you've never been a promoter on the other side of my calls. That's true. That I've never been a promoter. No, thanks. Um, (laughs) my other, my other question for you is when you, I mean, you, you talked about the two women that you worked for, Sam, mm-hmm. Sam and Kara. Yeah. Now that you're in this, you know, different part of your career where you're basically running shit, um, do you have younger women that you work with that you kind of mentor or kind of what's your take on now that you're kind of on the other side, what's your take on the, the young women who are coming up in the music industry? Yeah. I mean, I honestly feel like they're playing a really different game to what I did. Like, I think interestingly, like, I started noticing like the, you know, companies institutionalizing support around like uplifting women and promoting women. Like I want to say it probably like five years after I exited the agency world. And that really was a big shift. Like I think to, you know, even though not every single person has like externalized, I'm sorry, internalized exactly why that exists and, you know, why bias exists and why we should do this and why it's a good thing. Um, you know, I think this sort of, sort of supporting women, uh, diversifying the workplace, like things like this that are like deeply important to me and my own personal mission were all but entirely ignored in the start of my career. Yeah. If I'm being totally honest. And maybe yeah. it was, it was more forgiving in other parts of the industry, but like the agency is the most old world part of the game. Like it's the mad men of the music industry. It's like, you know, the nep- like where nepotism shines above all. I learned um, a few months into working at WME that every single person that had started in the mail room that year, the most junior entry-level position that you could begin at in the company, every single person had a referral except for me. Wow. Wow. Every single one. That totally makes sense though. You just have that yeah. grit. You have the grit where it's like, you're getting in there. <laughs> you know, one thing, getting in there. 
I always wonder how much this like actually made a difference. But so before I graduated from college, I was working as a paralegal at an entertainment law firm for an incredible attorney named Peter Thal, really great guy. Um, And, you know, respected seasoned lawyer, uh, you know, people sort of knew who this guy was and everything. And when I applied for the role at WME, I actually sent in a paper resume on legal stationery. <laughs> that probably doesn't hurt, bro. Yeah. I was just a little shyster back then. That's what's I mean, up. I, That's what's I was up. like, I don't have, you know, I don't have a referral. I don't have an uncle. I don't have a dad. Yeah. That is, you know, I didn't go to Syracuse where like everybody just like hires everybody from Syracuse. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I had, I had those... my NYU business degree, but I had no connections at that point. And so that NYU business degree is a good start too. Yeah. 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 I want to talk because we've talked about this before and, you know, Mm. this is this episode is about the intricacies and, you know, implications of being a woman in music, in entertainment. Talk to me about how gender is viewed in Asia, because I know you spent some time there and your your family is from where? So my parents were actually both born and raised here in the Bay yeah. Area. Um, originally, our both of our both sides of the family originate from southern China, like Hong Kong, Guangdong area. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for all intensive purposes, I had a very American upbringing, a very Chinese American upbringing. Right? Yeah, uh, distinctly different from the Chinese upbringing, which I now know much better after having lived out there. Distinctly different from the American one too. Right. But I guess suffice it to say, I didn't have a lot of connection to Asia because I was several generations removed, two on my mom's side and one on my dad's side. Right. All of our family live in California. And like, I think when I first went out to China and started kind of like recognizing how gender was treated a bit differently, at least in music, Mm -hmm. um, was probably in 2017 where, um, you know, managing a Chinese-American rapper who I still work with today, his name's Bohan Phoenix. Please go check him out, stream him all the time. Leave his tabs up on Twitch. Bohan Phoenix, um, you know, he raps in English and in Mandarin. Uh, We were getting a bunch of sort of interest out in China in a time where hip-hop was really blowing up. It was a very, very exciting time. And, um, you know, we were putting together what we thought was going to be a short run of shows. Uh, we thought it was probably going to be like four or five dates or something. And ultimately we ended up playing something like 13 shows, um, all but two of which were in mainland China. The other, or I think the other, maybe three weren't. Anyways, um, so that was a really interesting and sort of eye-opening experience for me because it allowed me to visit a bunch of different cities in China that I probably would have never gone to on my own, mm. but also view them through the lens that was most important to me which was at the time, you know, music and underground culture and local venues and scenes and, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of constant push and pull that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed along the way was that there were so many women promoters Mm. and there were so many women in the audience, right? Mm. You go to a rap show in the States and, you know, it depends on who it is, but a lot of the times it's just like a shitload of dudes in backpacks. Like, and, 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 you know, (laughs) I found that in China, pretty much all of our shows over half of the audience were women. And I was like, what is going on here? (laughs) Like, how how does this work? Like it was so different from what I knew. And, you know, I think for me, like just barely scratching the surface of what the actual experience is like, you know, growing up or living um, or just existing as like a adult in China was so new that I really didn't have a frame of reference to understand it. I didn't, really know. And so what I did was kind of, you know, take a page out of the journalist book, not to say that I ever really was one, but I had sort of an interest in writing and 
um, you know, had worked at the Fader magazine for some time and had sort of great, great respect for, for the editorial craft and everything and, and, mm-hmm. and how um, it can be so useful in just sort of getting to know people in scenes. I decided to write a short piece about um, my findings of women <clears throat> promoters in China were actually interviewed to the best of my ability because my Chinese at the time was terrible, had a lot of help from people, um, interviewed some women promoters in four different markets across China. Um, actually, none of them, interestingly enough, were in what's called tier one cities, which are kind of like the biggest cities in China, Beijing, Shanghai, the most international facing. Like we're talking sort of like the cities that were very much mainland China vibes, like most of the people that you would find living and working in there probably didn't study abroad, most likely, you know, didn't have interest in in, in living internationally, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, what I kind of found in the conclusion that I drew ultimately was that I felt that um, at least in the live music world, live music was like a much newer fixture in a, you know, in Chinese people's lives than it was in the U S right. Part of that was to do with just sort of like economics and the system generally, and just overall like, um, interest in music. Like I think, you know, not to, not to go too far down a tangent and everything, but popular music in China right now, like you could trace a lot of that back to revolutionary music and propaganda music and stuff that happened during the cultural revolution. Mm -hmm. And it was like really always tied to patriotism and, and um, you know the family and working hard and things like that and so popular music to the extent that it exists today you know where you're sort of talking about things like love and your personal struggles and and whatnot like it's it's relatively new by contrast I guess to what you might find in the states or other parts of the western world and everything and so by consequent the industry that surrounds the live music world is also newer So in many ways, like it started later and there was so much less of this like old world precedent of like men work and do the jobs and women stay at home. Right. Mm. So like that was, was, you know, historically just like less present in, in the business generally. But then I also found that like all the women that I spoke to just really honestly felt like gender was a non-issue. Like Mm. of the four women that I spoke to, every single one of them had, you know, grew up in China with the exception of one. Um, Kristen Ng, incredible promoter, incredible musician. She's from New Zealand, but had been living in Chengdu um, for several years at the time that I met her. And she was the only one who even kind of like pointed out the irregularity of the, you know, how prevalent women promoters and women fans of hip hop were. Mm. Uh, Every other woman was just kind of like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, this isn't an issue for us. Like gender roles, it just means that, you know, I do this job and you do the job where you lift the heavy things, but we're working together and it's not a big deal. And and mm. so it was just really interesting to me because I think it really kind of challenged like the preconceived notions that I had about China generally, which to put it very bluntly was that, you know, China as compared to the U S the greatest country in the world, which is what you're trained to believe when you grow up here, you know, you're trained to believe that it's the, the greatest country in the world. You're trained to believe that it's also the most progressive one. <laughs> this wasn't. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't see gender. Um, you know, I, I felt like the imbalance of gender in the live music world was so stark that I had always just kind of accepted it from the get go um, in, in the States. Whereas in China, like it was it was like an almost a non issue, like women comprised like almost 40 percent of the promoters that I worked with on that tour. Mm. Um, another thing that actually pays a really big factor in this is the one child rule in China, mm. which is basically 
you know, so it, it is no longer allowed around right now, but for anybody who's my age and a bit older and a bit younger, um, that generation all grew up as only children, right? Mm. It was the law in China as a matter of population control and whatnot, that each family could only have one child. And so, you know, Chinese parents, like many other parents, and I'd say especially Chinese parents, like love their children. They put so much into them in the way of like wanting to see them succeed almost to the detriment of their own relationships with their children at times. They push very hard. Like, you know, the the success of your child is a huge uh, uh, bit of your own personal pride, right? And you want to pass down the right things. And so in many ways, like that meant that something around 50% of families had a child and that child was a girl. And so, you know, whereas in contrast to the past where it was like you had multiple children and boys were always revered above girls and they were given everything over girls, you know, in the way of property and education and love and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, families that had a girl had one child to put all of those things into. And if it was a girl, so be it. They were like, you know, study hard, be successful. You can do it like in, in a way that like hadn't been instilled in women in the past. And so I think that actually has a huge amount to do with it too. I think some of the stuff that I brought back um, from my experience living in China was just getting outside of my own reality um, and being able to challenge it in, in ways that I hadn't considered before. You know, by the time that I left New York, I had been hustling so hard <laughs> all of the time that I'd lived there. I had, you know, two to three jobs as a student. I worked really, really hard in the companies that I worked at. I continued to DJ after that and everything. And it was just really out there. And I think it was really important to me to always like be out in the scene, going to the shows, seeing the people, shaking the hands, like being in the know. Bro, you like, were out there. I was fucking out there. Like I was out <laughs> probably five nights a week. Um and that excludes literally DJing every weekend in addition. Like, like I like, I like wouldn't sleep. count that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but I think like that, that was a fantastic approach for me to just like grow my career, get experience, get ahead, grow a network and everything in the beginning. But I think towards the end of my time in New York, like I, you know, I had just gotten older and I, I wanted different things, but I didn't know how to articulate them. I didn't know how to get them. And I didn't know how to change the approach that had always worked for me to adapt it to these new goals. Right. Yeah. And so I was kind of like stuck in this hamster wheel that was really starting to get to me and, and really starting to be quite unhealthy, like both physically and mentally. And, you know, leaving to go to China, um, you know, as much as there was like really fantastic sort of opportunity out there for me, a lot of it was motivated by like a, you know, a desperation to get away yeah. from the life that I was, that I felt was holding me captive. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I went out to China, it was the most humbling thing because, um, you know, I, I think I had developed like, and I'll be the first to admit it. I think I had developed a, a sense of self-importance that was not serving me or any of the people around me being in sort of my empowered position in the music industry and everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and going to a completely other country where nobody fucking knows you and nobody cares. <laughs> was the the best thing I could imagine. It really was like, I needed to experience that. I needed to be humbled. Um, I needed to allow my ego to not get in the way of me, 
<laughs> and others around me. And so, you know, I think that was probably like the single most valuable personal experience. Mm. I think outside of that too, there are probably, there's probably no world relationship that is more important and impactful for the entire globe than the US and China, but there's probably no relationship that will be harder to repair or build than that one because Mm. the conversations happen completely separately of one another. And there's very little in the way of exchange, right? And so as an American, even as a Chinese American, you know, very proud of of my heritage and and whatever I thought that meant at the time, right? Um, I had also in many ways internalized a lot of the biases that one does growing up in the US, which is this very Cold War-esque narrative and look at China and communism as basically the enemy and, you know, impoverished and underdeveloped and unjust, unfair. And there's just simply no way that this could be better than than what Mm. we have at home, right? Mm -hmm. Until I lived in China. (laughs) And I realized that, you know, there were so many things about the way the country is run the way that the infrastructure is built, the way that technology is integrated into everyday life that was so much more efficient, progressive, and and just better and con- more convenient yeah. than what I was experiencing in the States. And I was shocked by that. When you first got there, we like FaceTime audio because like that was your phone situation. But you, I remember you being so like amped up, like telling me about what, what you're saying right now about how you yeah. were like, just so amazed by the efficiencies there. <laughs> yeah, truly. I felt like everything that I had been led to believe about Silicon Valley mm-hmm. was a hoax after I lived <laughs> in China. And, and the reason that I think that is, is that Silicon Valley touts itself as the fastest moving, most innovative, most cutting edge technological city in the entire world. Right. And I will give it that and say that in many ways it has been, right? Yeah. But at the same time, Silicon Valley was unable to do what China was able to do in the way of building an app like WeChat, getting 98% of the population in a tier one city like Shanghai to use it in under two years, and then put all of its infrastructural things like on top of it to the extent that you can, you know, pay your subway fare on your phone using WeChat Pay. You can pay your utility bill directly from there. You can schedule an appointment with your doctor at a public hospital for like the specific window of time that you would like to be seen. Like all these kinds of like incredible layers of like just efficiency and a country well run that you see every day in the way of like how traffic flow works, like in the streets and everything and how no train or bus is ever late. Like this is because technology is so integrated into everyday life into China. And if you think about it, that shit happened overnight if you compare it to the US. But like what this ultimately comes down to, and I promise I'm going to tie this thought in, is that, you know, the reason that China is able to do this is because the government is so in bed with technology. Mm. Technology here is privately owned. So while the way that Google and Amazon delivery systems and stuff like that might be incredibly efficient, the post office is is suffering and medical facilities right. are, you know, under-resourced and not run efficiently. And, and so, you know, it's this kind of thing where I think as an American, you have this in, uh, immediate resistance to the idea of like government or the powers that be having access to your information or having access to too much technology. Even though they do. Exactly. And, and this, this real kind of intense uh, illusion of privacy that, quite tech, frankly, it does not exist, right? Tech, tech um, companies have great PR. 
Great PR. Great PR. Great PR. <laughs> um, you know, by contrast, in China, it's the exact opposite, right? Like, there is no privacy for you. And I used to think that that was a terrible thing. But then when I lived in a world where that lack of privacy was of great benefit to everyone, mm-hmm. it made sense to me. Right. Coronavirus is another fantastic example of that, right? Where like people who were living in China at the time, you know, in some cities would be uh, assigned like a QR code or a unique code or whatever. And when they would go to different places, they would have to scan that code. And so let's say you went to a grocery store and then, um, you know, somebody else who was also at that grocery store earlier that day went and got a coronavirus test and they tested positive. Mm, then everybody who had been to that grocery store that day would be notified. And then you would also go get a test and you would uh. also wear a mask because you aren't fucking American. And so, you know, all these <laughs> things like yeah. are, are, are really, really sort of, you know, from, from like an outsider's perspective seem like an obvious way to kind of deal with issues and efficiency and run a country, but are run so like, in contrast to like how we believe as an American people, how we've internalized this like narrative around technology and privacy mm-hmm. that like we will never be able to have access to unless we get out of our own way. And yeah. I would have never been able to realize that had I not spent so much time living out there. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel like the things that you took back from China have helped you kind of recenter with your purpose and your mission? Like what, really what is, question. yeah. And, and also what is your, What's your personal mission, bro? <laughs> Yo, fam, my <laughs> personal mission. Um, and, you know, it's changed a few times and I sure, I'm sure it will change in the future. But, yeah. you know, go something like using sort of my, my privilege, my power, my example and whatnot to uplift communities and others in need. Right. And, you know, that can manifest itself in many different ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd, I'd say for me, like, probably the single most valuable thing that I learned in China was a to question the systems and the things around me to find better ways of solving old problems. Mm. And that's why when I came back to America, I was not ready to work in the music industry again. It's so antiquated. It's so antiquated. Like I think, you know, aside from it structurally being antiquated, I also think that the mindset is antiquated. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I think, um, and and this was I was no exception to this rule and everything, but I think that the majority of people that work in the music industry are looking at it from a standpoint of okay, how do I understand the system around me and like you know finesse my way around right. this gatekeeper or that gatekeeper instead of trying to I, change the system exactly <laughs> like how do I make this work for me right, right, right and right, right. I was done making other people's bullshit work for me. I wanted to find my own ways to do the things that I wanted to do. And I wanted to also, you know, have my fucking cake and eat it too and do it at work. And so (laughs) going (laughs) to work at a a major label or, you know, a a booking agency again, like I would, I I couldn't see myself doing it. Yeah. What my time in China taught me was a, it helped me get closer to like what that mission statement is and you know, how, how I want to work, not just what I want to do, but how I want to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and even making the distinction between those two things, I think being in China was really helpful for that. And, you know, it was also just like an extremely literal lesson in self-reliance where like you are in a new country where you're not a citizen and you hardly speak the language. There's no Roman alphabet. Your family is far, far away, and you just got to make this shit work. Yeah, like, dude. It was the hardest thing I ever did, but it was definitely, definitely like the, the, the biggest teaching moment of my life. 
Yeah. Easily. People always say like, uh, New York is the city that never sleeps. And like, yes, New York is lively for sure. But if you compare that shit to China, that New York city looks like an afternoon nap. Okay. Like shit is way faster in China. There's way more frenetic energy, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Like buildings are are come and gone in a matter of two months. Like the biggest new tech company has come and gone in a matter of six months. Like it's like everything is dynamic, everything is changing. And so um, you know, I think it it encouraged me in a way, in a, a completely new environment that was like always a moving target to like look within myself to define what was important to me and how I wanted to to achieve it rather than reacting to what was around me Mm. and like proactively trying to fit in where I could get in. Right. Which is how it had always been before. Yeah. And I, without even realizing it. Yeah. That definitely takes a toll on your mental health. (laughs) I would, I would imagine. First, I mean, both of them do. Like I think I was, I was scared shitless the majority of the time I was in China. Like I was, I was, so um insecure about my terrible chinese speaking abilities it was like a great source of shame to me and i think that that prohibited me from from having some of the experiences that i wish i had had mm-hmm. um but you know in in many ways too like it was just um you know i became so comfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity and navigating the unknown mm-hmm. out there mm-hmm. because i was doing it Every day I wanted to order a meal or, yeah. or, you know, find my way on the scooter to the grocery store. Like every yeah. day. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to take it out of China back to here. Let's you do ready? it. You ready to go? You ready to come back? I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of conversation about mental health in the music industry. And it's usually happens when somebody dies or somebody takes their life or something tragic really happens. I'm curious how you take care of yourself and how you know when you're like going to spiral out. <laughs> um, yeah. And I also, you know, I also want to get into just the general like narrative around mental health. Totally. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, my experience with thinking about and being aware of my own mental health needs and, and my own self-care needs mm-hmm. is probably one and a half years old. Um, if I'm being totally honest, like I think I never exercised, I never thought about self-care. In fact, like for a really, really long time, especially towards the end of my time living in New York, um, you know, I was almost like bullishly against things like that. And and I had developed this like really kind of like, (laughs) honestly, it looks closer to toxic masculinity than anything else I've ever seen. And I'm like, not a dude, but like, I was like, I'm <laughs> too bro- tough for a this bro- shit. Girl. A bro girl. Yeah, super bro girl, right? Like I was like, I don't need to meditate because that shit is soft. I got shit to do. Dang. I got stuff to get done. Keep like, it moving, I don't, bro. <laughs> exactly. And so I had like prescribed to this own, like my own toxic masculinity narrative such that it became ultimately my undoing because I went insane not caring for myself and not balancing Mm. life and everything. Um, And so, you know, I'd say for now, like one of the really big differences and sort of the big turning point for me was moving back to the States in 2019 Mm -hmm. um, and not having a job and not, yeah, not having anything to like focus my like macho energy towards like, I'm going to crush it at this, whatever. Like I just didn't have anything to crush it at, to be honest. And, <laughs> and so you know, honest. 
<laughs> super I have nothing to crush it at. So like, I don't know what to do with myself right now. <laughs> Pretty much. And I was, and, and, and it honestly drove me crazy. Yeah. That shit fucked me up. If I'm being honest. And it was because it was like the first time that I was like forced to actually define myself in terms of myself and not in terms of my job and my career, how poppin' mm. I was, the external validation around me. Like it was literally the first time that I had even thought to think of these, these sort of other options that mm-hmm. were always available to me, but had always been ignored previously. And so, so mm. I was just going to say, so you, you've mentioned that when you left New York, but now you're in San Francisco. Yes. And you're at your parents' house. Mm-hmm. Um, how, have, how do you think grounding with your parents at this point in time, like how have your family values like kind of played into um, your new perspective? Really good question. Yeah. You know, family has always been really important to me. Um, I've always been extremely close to my brother, very close to my parents, even in the many years that I spent away. Um, and I'd say like coming back here was centering um, Mm. in that it was kind of like, uh, how do I say it? It was kind of like I, I, I I had gone around the world literally and figuratively and I had had all these experiences that like I had felt were like so glamorous and cool and, you know, admired and, and all these sorts of things. But like, ultimately I was like still the same person. Right. And like coming back here just like reminded me of that. I was like, oh yeah, like you did all that shit and that shit was cool yes. and everything, but you're like still just like some dude. Like it's cool. <laughs> like you can like chill. You're still like a 13 year old boy. So come back to your old room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I came back. It, let me tell you, I, so I moved back to the States like a week before my 30th birthday. Yeah. And when I moved back here, I was, so ce- I celebrated my 30th birthday alone because I did not have friends back here because Aww. I had lived away for so long. Not alone with th- your family. Yeah. I'd celebrate. I mean, we didn't really do very much, but okay. like, you no know, rager. I celebrated it with no friends. I didn't have like the, you know, the fanfare that a lot of people have around this milestone birthday. And I was okay with it. Yeah. I was sleeping in a twin sized bed oh that God. I had slept in when I was six years old in a room encircled by stuffed animals. <laughs> I've seen um, them. You have seen them and I don't share them with everybody, but anyways, those are some cute seals, bro. They are super cute, but, um, yeah, you know, it was a really sort of just like humbling experience where I was like, wow, like I've, I, you know, it, it forced me to reflect on the things that I had done, the things that were rewarding to me. It forced me to parse apart, you know, why things were rewarding to me. Like, were they actually emotionally rewarding? Did they actually help me as a person or was it part of this, like, Veneer. you know the accoutrements of like seeking yeah. external validation yeah, right for sure um and and so for the first time in many ways I guess like what I'm saying is I was being mindful because I was forced to do it for the first time in the absence of anything else and I hated it it drove me insane I was depressed I felt like I was worthless I questioned everything that I had achieved previously mm. that was really hard um, I I understand, bro. Yeah. yeah. And like a big part of me getting to the other side of that was like actually working with a life coach who I met oh. through you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's crazy how someone could come into your life at that pivotal time and like really 
adds so much value. Uh, yeah, I my life changed working with somebody. I mean, you know, it's 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 kind of a therapist, but it's not. But it is. You really have to like dig into who you are, which is hard, super hard, super hard, and super hard. We're, we're so as humans, we're so caught up in our stories and our own narrative that like it's so hard for us to make room for new ones to appear and just totally. like it's a it, congratulations bro <laughs> it was a big step for me because um you know prescribing so long to this like internal macho narrative like mm-hmm. i was not somebody that was ever willing to show vulnerability i did not like talking about my feelings i did mm. not like being corrected questioned like Mm. any of that kind of stuff I just you know it was it was something that was completely new and foreign to me and when I was like finally forcing myself to do it and working with somebody who could actually understand where I was coming from and guide me through that process like that was a that was a game changer and it it was you know the, the, the thing that I always found really interesting about it was that there was like zero ramp up time for that to like be valuable to me like I didn't have to like, you know how like a lot of people say you go see a therapist and you got to like yeah. try them out and like see if yeah. you like them and it like takes hell long and you're like, yeah, but I want to like, I like hate the world now. So if we could address <laughs> these issues with a degree so of urgency, we could just I would appreciate. Speed this up a little bit. Okay, cool. <laughs> but you know, I, I found it immediately valuable. Like e- even after like the first session, not even the first session, the consultation. I was like, oh my God, I haven't told anybody my feelings in so long. <laughs> You know what I mean? You like realize you were holding all this shit inside and it's not like, and I'm the type of person too, where I don't, I don't like to talk about stuff. I am. Yeah. I grew up very, very independent. I'm the only child. Same. I'm the oldest in my family in terms of grandkids. Like I'm just a, I'm a bro. I'm a total bro. And I've internalized that masculinity to the fullest. Now I'm yeah. like, I'm still a bro and I claim it. Um, but I know, but I know, Sambra, like I know <laughs> how to take other perspectives. That was just something I never knew how to do. Yeah. Um, and it took a lot of work to get me to it. I think I was just ready to do it. Like I think yeah. the, 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 the practical advice and the teachings and the lessons and the tools that he gave me would have just completely fallen on deaf ears just a few years before that. Like if I'm being totally honest, I would have just been like, this is, you know, like shut up with your eat, pray, love bullshit. I have things to do. Like that's literally would have been my response. Cool story, bro. Yeah, totally. <laughs> cool story, um, because I was just so unwilling to get out of my own way. I was so stuck in my own perspective, the narrative that I had created and prescribed to for so long. And, and, you know, when I finally like was really like starting to, to feel the, the, the imperfection of that narrative and stuff, it just all came crashing down. And dude, once like one little hole is poked, you're like, God damn, this shit ain't stable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God. So I guess just yeah, all the things that I thought I knew, like, I don't know anything. A pyramid um, built from sand. <laughs> pretty much, dude. Very much a pyramid built from sand. Like it it was yeah. Like I I I in many times like I miss I miss the times when I knew everything and you couldn't tell me shit. It was like so easy to exist because you were just, I was just like in this like straight path of, of, you know, black and white sort of way of life and everything. And now like, I just feel totally different. I'm like a very different person. (laughs) Mm. I mean, I feel like if you're not 
growing, then you're not really living. So I would agree with that. You should be a different person. Fuck it. But you're still the same 13 year old boy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, (laughs) for sure. Here with my Dragon Ball Z mug. No. (laughs) Wait, I'm going to take a screenshot. Do that again. Skirt. It's not normal times. We're living through history right now. Nobody knows what's going to happen. How are you, like, are you, are you looking forward to it? What are you looking forward to? How are you like staying optimistic? Are you like, how are you feeling right now? Um, you know, I am actually, it, it's ironic and I, I feel a degree of guilt to even say it in some ways, but I actually feel quite good right now. And I think that the reason that that is, is I am unreasonably fortunate in my own life to have found a new job that I love um, right before the pandemic started, literally April 13th was my first day. Um, Yeah. Right. Um, You know, my family is healthy and everything. I have a partner who I love deeply, who I met before, you know, just before sort of all this stuff happened. And so in in many ways for me, like the, the sort of like typical things that like, you kind of like want to have going on your life, right? Like healthy family, love life, career, like, all those things are in a really good place for me right now. Mm-hmm. And I actually have the capacity to appreciate them because mm. I came from <laughs> exactly fam. Like it's not some shit to be taken for granted, not just in contrast to what is going on in the world, but in contrast to what was going on in my life for me personally, before all this came about, which mm. quite honestly is very similar to what a lot of my friends and peers are experiencing right now, which is this, you know, time of, potentially not working or working much less, questioning what's important to you, like really looking inward and challenging some of the things that you have kind of prescribed to your entire life. Like I think for me, like that takes work and it's hard mm. and I did it. And so I'm mm. proud of myself. And, and Yeah, and, <laughs> that's what's up. I'm proud of you too. Thanks, fam. I do too. Um, <laughs> I can't believe we just fucking Wow, yeah. Wow, we just fist guys. Just so you know. Oh. God, yeah, um, you know, thousands yeah. of miles away and can't stop a bro from building fam. But anyways. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And with that, thank you for coming to current mood. Yeah. <laughs> fam. fam. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'd say right now, like, I think for me, I am really lucky with the timing of events because um, a lot of the work that I did in the, in the year sort of leading up to this point was centering and figuring out what was important to me and, and, you know, recognizing who was in my life because for the right reasons Mm. and whatnot and and who wasn't, there were a lot of people who weren't right. Um, And so I'm really, really grateful that I did all of that work before this happened (laughs) because I, because doing that work alone, like, in the time that I did was so hard and to do it while the world is literally on fire, especially if you live in Northern California. Oh my gosh. Would have been like, I don't, I, I honestly don't know how I would have handled it. Jackie. Like, I think I could have like really, it could have been really, really bad. Like I was depressed without the troubles of the world right on my shoulders. And, and so I don't know what yeah. I would have done. Does, does the work ever end though? The work never really ends. <laughs> no. I mean, I think right now, one of the things that I'm really struggling with is just um, 
figuring out how to create boundaries for myself mm-hmm. and everything. Like for me, I'm, I'm kind of a glutton for punishment. I love to work hard. I love to be challenged and I love to win. <laughs> Anyone Damn. who's ever played any game with me. Did you me, play sports? Uh, yeah. Oh, and the only reason that I quit was because I wasn't the best. So oh my God. Anything, <laughs> that tells you anything, my friend. It's say less. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wait, what sport? Like basketball? That's what I'm imagining. I, dude, I'm like two feet tall. You know, I didn't play basketball. What, whatever, bro. I feel like you get to <laughs> the shot. Um, well, I played something way more fucking G, which was badminton. I was the captain of my badminton team. Wow. Bitch. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. It's coming out. Yeah. Out. I, I played badminton. I played tennis. I did some cross country. Like this was all like in high school, like, you know, 5 million years ago and everything. Um, so, you know, those were like my main sports, but like the thing that the extracurricular that I had always put most time into was piano because I was sick at it. And so is there a piano where you are? There is a piano where I am. It's, uh, about 10 feet away from me. Can you play something? Really? You want me to play something right now? Yeah. Whatever you want to play, you play a little, just a quickie. All right, here, let me, well, oh, that's good. Okay. All right. Yep. Let's see. Thank you for obliging my request. You're really putting me on the spot here. I mean, I feel like this is thing. But, you know, it's I, I, I made a promise to myself to be open to making mistakes and being more vulnerable, whereas I would have been like, oh, Jackie wants to hear me play piano for 30 seconds. You must practice for 95 hours. <laughs> um, yeah. So my favorite composer is Chopin, and I love the sad shit.
Dude. Yeah. I. <laughs> what? You're like a professional pianist. It's like in an opera or something. A, a what? A pianist. <laughs> hey, don't forget to subscribe to Current Mood on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and Anchor and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Also, join us on Instagram for some super cool visuals at currentmood.io. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you really feel like reaching out, send a message. Tell us what you are feeling, please. Thanks so much.